Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today I'm speaking with Dave Burkus, the world's first super angel investor. I'll tell you what that means and how he's invested in hundreds of different startups. So I said last week I was going to talk about some resolutions for 2019. It pretty much fits right into my usual spiel here of not making excuses for yourself. We all start off the year with this determination. We join a gym, we buy a bunch of books, we start buying lots of fruits and vegetables that we're not going to eat. We have good intentions, we just don't follow through on them. Maybe it's because no one's holding us accountable, or maybe it's because we don't lay out a clear plan of how to accomplish those goals. A great idea without the plan to execute is nothing. Ask any startup investor whether they bet on ideas or teams. It's always teams. So joining a gym is great, but without a plan of how many days per week you're going to go, classes you're going to take, people you're going to go with, all that stuff is just difficult to follow through on. Last year I said I wanted to read 12 books in 2018. I actually read 17. A couple were really short though. But how did I stay on top of this goal? Well, I created a spreadsheet, of course. It actually served two purposes. It kept me on track, and I could see my progress, but it also served as a wish list of sorts that I could write down books uh, as I heard about them. I knew every month if I was on track to meet my goal or not, and I could adjust accordingly. For this year, a couple of my resolutions are to go with the flow and to be less reactive. My life has changed a lot since July when we had our baby. You might be able to hear her screaming in the background right now. It's not just my happiness I need to think about anymore. It's my entire family's. I've never been great at going with the flow. If I didn't get to pick the restaurant or activity or whatever, I wasn't happy. On a side note, I'm really good at picking stuff and then getting other people to think that it was their idea. Anyway, all of it was really just a big waste of energy for being less reactive. Same kind of thing. I hear some news and I immediately take action and have strong emotions. My wife has to experience a lot of my emotion swings, and I really just want to be better at managing that. This one's a little tougher to remedy than going with the flow because it's really, it's programmed pretty deep inside of me, but I know it's something that I want to work on. So for execution, how am I going to accomplish these mindset changes? Just putting it out there, that doesn't really do anything. So first, I put uh, an alert in my phone every morning. It says, go with the flow. Second, Meditation is a big one for me. 
On the days where I spend a few minutes meditating in the morning, the entire day really takes a different perspective. The problem, though, is that I can never find 10 minutes to do it in the morning. It's crazy, right? I can't get 10 minutes to do something that will help me all day long. So I put it in my calendar every morning. I'm not saying that I'm actually going to do it, but we'll see. If seeing that notification and having a few minutes blocked off, I think will help. I don't know. Let's check back in a couple months and see how it's going. If anyone wants to tell me their resolutions or plans, I would love to hear them. You can email me, alex at wallstreetoasis.com, or I'm on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, I'd really love to hear from you. Also, I got a super nice message from Faison Ahmed this week. He said some really nice things and basically how the podcast has had a big impact on his life. It's so cool hearing stuff like that. The podcast, it doesn't make any money. It's a good networking tool, but getting messages like this really makes all the effort seem worth it. So that's it. Happy holidays and happy new year. I'll talk to everyone in 2019. Dave Burkus, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alex. Happy to be here. Yeah, you are a prolific angel investor. Hundreds of angel investments. You're a technologist. You've been doing this for a really long time. You've written all sorts of books on startup investing and startups in general. So I'm honored that you're speaking with me today. Well, thank you. After that introduction, there's nothing more for me to say. Okay, click. Good podcast. Signing off now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, because our listeners need to hear. I mean, you've got some incredible experience, knowledge, wisdom. Uh, so I'd love to get into your career, how you got to where you are, how you became kind of a, a big time name in the uh, angel investing world. Sure. Happy to tell you. Actually, I began in 1993 at a time before the term angel investor had really been created, or if created, had never been used. And I called myself a resource capitalist. That's a term that I invented trying to make it sound like venture capitalists that gave more than money. And so I wrote a book along with co-author Bob Kelly in 1994 trying to describe that. And uh, we had five tenants that we thought that we gave, things that we gave that were better than money. And uh, I'll tell you about those in a while, but that was the way in which we began, or at least I began. Uh, I didn't have any deal flow. Because in those days, there were no ways in which people could reach anybody easily. And so I went to a local venture capitalist and basically said, uh, give me your tired, your poor. Give me all of those you think are good, but too early for you. Let me work with them if I think that they're the right ones for me and get them ready for you. Did the same thing with Silicon Valley Bank, knowing that they were turning down some early stage businesses that they weren't ready to finance. And so I had deal flow. Uh, in the first week after having done that. And it was from that deal flow that I built my business. And it wasn't until five or six years later that the first angel groups came and made it easier for me. Sure. So that that's an interesting creative way to go about it, to go see something that's being done and say, well, not the entire you know, a value chain is being served here. I can move down the value chain and, and provide a, something that's not being done. That, that's a cool way to, that's a cool opportunity that you were able to seize. And it worked. And so my premise at the time hasn't changed. I wrote that book in 1994. I wrote another book based on the same five principles in 2006 that was published by uh, uh, one of the major presses. And then I republished it. I bought the uh, copyright back and republished it again in 2013. That book is called Extending the Runway. 
And it basically spe speaks of what a real angel investor can do other than just provide the money. And in a quick summary, what it really means is, I believe that good angels who can coach the entrepreneur can also provide context, whether or not the business is in the right place at the right time or way too early or even way too late, provide process, teaching the entrepreneur how to get the product or service out the door in the quickest, most expeditious way possible to save some of that money that's being invested, to show resources such as uh, contacts. If I have a large number of contacts, and I certainly do, I might be able to put this person in touch with the president of Macy's or whatever seems appropriate that they would have never been able to do themselves. And finally, we feel like uh, we know how to handle the... Uh, did I say process? No, I didn't. So process, getting from here to there in a quick but, again, uh, ex expeditious manner so that you get the job done for less money. So those five things, uh, money, context, process, relationships, and uh, am I missing one? This is terrifying <laughs> after all this time. But you've got the idea. I got it, and I love it. So, Dave, what level of companies do you get involved at? I mean, it sounds like this is before a venture round of, of, of financing, but, you know, angel investing today, it's moved so much up market. I'm sure from when you started doing this, like these are not back of the envelope business models, right? These are like people that have products they're They've been developing Maybe they have customers. Like, how does it work? It is very rare that I get involved at the back of the envelope, but it has happened. Uh, but I think all of us have moved upstream. And it happens over time, primarily because we lose so much money and learn from those losses. Uh, kind of uh, pattern matching, having seen the business before, we have a good feeling for whether or not one of these very early stage businesses is worth developing. So in the early days, I did take a chance with some very young businesses that hadn't yet really been fully developed. Today, I think most of ours have to prove themselves having at least done a market survey have a wireframe or a prototype or something to be able to show and validate. And uh, in many cases, have gotten even as far as finding a customer that said, I would uh, buy your product or your service if it's fully baked and ready to go. That's farther by far than the back of the envelope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just the function of the startup environment that we're in today. You got to really de-risk the business before you can go take on outside money. Well, you use the right term because you probably know that I created a method back in the middle 90s to try and price these businesses. And I did it by de-risking. So if you've ever heard of the Berkus method, that is exactly how the Berkus method came about and how that Berkus method has become kind of ubiquitous for pricing early stage uh, businesses. Yeah, I've Dave, I I'm definitely familiar with it. I'd love to hear, you know, you describe it a little bit so that the listeners can become familiar as well. Sure. So, way back in the middle 90s, I said, uh, you know, this is the most riskiest of all possible investments. I didn't have enough statistics at the time to realize that only about 4% of all the investments I make end up making about 90% of all the money that I've made. But that later turned to be true, but it still just reinforced the very same method that I used to try and price these at the early stage. So I'll describe it quickly. I give a maximum of two to two and a half million dollars worth of pre-money valuation to a very early stage company. And maximum means I have five different 
uh, elements of value, or you consider them in the opposite context, elements of risk. And if I can give a price to each of a maximum of $500,000, perhaps I can best calculate what this business is worth today and give it a a pre-money valuation that makes sense. So the first is kind of the obvious. Is this business worth investing in? Do I believe enough in the business idea, the entirety of the entrepreneur, maybe the team and all to even begin the context? And the answer is yes, if I do, then I'll give it up to $500,000 worth of initial pre-money valuation just for that. And then you find the other elements which are important. Number one, can management that we know that we've met, that we've talked to, take this business up to break-even? And break-even is the proxy for security. If a company can get to break-even, then it's likely to stay in business over time. If you have to switch out management to make that happen, it's a highly risky venture because often it's hard to find somebody to replace an entrepreneur that is excited about a business and knows about the industry. So that's up to 500000 500000 more for having built a prototype or a wireframe or something to prove that the technical risk, the technology risk, is pretty much gone, or at least we can evidence that it's going. That's worth another 500000 Have they done market research? Do they have a customer who has said, I'll buy it if, or a supplier that said, I'll give you uh, free credit for 90 days if, some way of validating the market itself? That reduces the marketing risk, and that's worth another 500000 for me. And so I've just given you four, and there's a possible fifth, The four, as you just heard, were the original idea, the marketing risk, the management risk, and the prototype risk, uh, or the technology risk. The fifth is revenue. If they have any evidence at all that their product has actually gotten to the marketplace and has any kind of revenue, small as it might be, that could be another value imperative. uh, Let's just say the market is validating it. If it gets a lot of revenue, then this formula doesn't work. You need to go to all the usual formulas for valuation. So maximum of two to two and a half million dollars worth of valuation using the formula. Right, Dave, that's really interesting to hear. It's so cool that you thought of this so long ago. I mean, you were way ahead of your time. But I think it's really helpful to hear, you know, someone has a startup, they're thinking, oh, this could be a takeover the world type opportunity. And they love it, but it's interesting to hear the other side of the table, how potential capital providers think about investing in really early stage companies. So that's that, that's great, Dave. Thank you for that. It is kind of universal. <laughs> if you look at uh, Google and you uh, Google Berkus Method, you'll find over 3,200 people who have did, did, uh, excuse me, done something on the internet where they've repeated the method and they've used the name. So that's uh, encouraging. It just shows that we have kind of a universal standard, and there are several like it that help people to value these businesses when there was really no way of doing it before. Sure. Okay, Dave, I have um, kind of a motivational question. You've been doing this for a long time. You've had tons of success. I'm sure you've had tons of failures. I'd like to hear about some of the failures maybe later, but... What motivates you today? Like, why why are you still doing this? What what is it about? Is it like you love working with founders that are trying to change the world, and you get to attach yourself to their rocket ships, and you have a unique skill set? Why do you still do this? Well, you're asking a question to have me introspectively look back twenty five years worth of uh, dedicated angel investing. It's the only real career that I have during these twenty five years. 
uh, I had a business that uh, grew to be quite a big size. I sold that business. And the money that I got from that business seemed to me to uh, be very useful in helping entrepreneurs do what I didn't do myself. I had no coaches. I had no investors. I did it all for myself and I learned the hard way. Well, that business grew, which is nice, but there were lots of ways looking back. The business could have grown faster and maybe even larger if I had had some of these resources we just talked about. So I deliberately planned to find entrepreneurs where I could grant those resources and help accelerate their business. Sure. So is there, you're still doing this, you're, are you as active as you ever, as you ever were? I mean, I see that you manage six funds, like that's, how do you, you know, allocate your time and allocate where you're spending your capital today? I have to give you those resources or at least those uh, statistics, they'll shock you, but I'm on uh, 10 for-profit company boards, chairman of six of them. Uh, I'm about to become chairman of a seventh. Uh, and I am on four nonprofit boards, one of which takes a lot of my time, and six uh, where I am an advisor. So we'll call those advisory boards. That's 10 plus four plus six is 20. That's a lot, especially if each of them meets once a month, <laughs> as almost all of them do. So that's where I spend a lot of my time. But I can do much of this from my desk as I do my keynote speeches, more and more from my desk. I always allocate three or four, sometimes five, times in which I'll speak to a graduate school of business somewhere in the country. And I used to uh, travel, at least in Southern California, and many of these are in West Los Angeles, uh, UCLA, for example, or in Orange County, UCI, for example, or Chapman. And I would spend two hours traveling each way. When I built the TV studio in my home, it became obvious to me that I could try and do this differently. And so for the last year, my number of keynotes has decreased a bit, but the number of keynotes where I travel to places has decreased dramatically. And I do this from my TV studio with a uh, ability to uh, broadcast, showing the PowerPoints, my image over the PowerPoints, and the universal response from the audience, whether it be a group of students in a graduate school or whether it be an audience of 400 in Sydney, Australia, is after about three or five or seven minutes, they forget that I wasn't standing at the podium. So I have a better audio quality, more control over the visual effects, and lots of things I can do with a video studio and a switcher that I could never do if I were standing at a podium. And it's becoming sure. the uh, easy way to be able to travel the world without having to go anywhere. Well, that's great. You've disrupted your own business. So is there, a, is, is there a message that we haven't hit on yet that you like to key in on when you give these presentations to business school students? Yeah. I mean, there are several tracks and they depend very much upon who is the audience. Uh, one of those that I give uh, is one that I condensed into a very short TEDx talk. And basically it is the successes and failures in the case of the keynote of 20 businesses, 20 entrepreneurial businesses that have either succeeded greatly or failed miserably. And the lesson that I and or the entrepreneur learned in the meantime, and these condense down to lessons that are universal. And so it's a, a great 40 minute or 45 minute keynote. And in fact, for those, whenever there are investors in the audience, I add how much money, not in dollars, but in percentage of investment that I made or lost in the process of learning that lesson. 
So that's one track that uh, is quite popular. Another which uh, has become popular just this last year, uh, I've titled, depending on the group, Will Tech Take Your Job? (laughs) And by looking at the various ways of technology over time and using the theory that we're coming to the end of one of these waves with massive disruption coming in the next four to six years, which jobs are going to be lost, which jobs are coming, and what the universities are teaching today that may not be relevant during this next upheaval and creative destruction that's going to happen during these next four to six years. Uh, I find it fascinating. I don't know. I think the audience does too. And I give statistics to prove each of the points. And so that is a keynote that I've given worldwide during this last year. Great. So Dave, you know, and getting to the, to the, the latter end of the podcast, we usually talk about advice and advice. If you were talking to your son or daughter, who's entering college or coming out of college or advice to your younger self of things you would have done differently over your career. You know, maybe you can look back at that presentation where you go over the 20 businesses and see what things worked and and what things didn't. But I'd love to distill uh, the last question here into, you know, actionable things that, that you can take away at uh, from your, from your long and prolific career. I went to a liberal arts college. Uh, I was, uh, so engrossed in what I learned in the way of things other than I expected to learn that I didn't have to worry about my major because so many other things were interesting. In fact, uh, it was only a couple of years out of college that I taught myself to program that ended up being the beginning of quite a career. And I did all this because I learned to think creatively in a liberal arts environment where I wasn't restricted to a single track. It wasn't just business administration or accounting or uh, computer programming or something of the kind. It was the ability to think in a way in which I'd find myself able to adapt as technology adapted. And that's exactly what happened. I have a statistic as part of this keynote that I just said. The average graduate of the average college today, no matter what that person majored in, will end up experiencing 13 different jobs in five different types of businesses over that person's lifetime. That is shocking. And you don't want to major in accounting when you think that you're going to be possibly in some other fields and drawn into young businesses where accounting is only a part of what you do. If you could have the ability to think creatively and that I think is more valuable than everything else. Okay, Dave, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, about your Amazon story. You have one more antidote here for us. Uh, so I'd love to, I'd love to hear it. I have told this story often enough that maybe your listeners haven't heard it, but I'm not sure there's anyone in the world that hasn't, but here it comes. I had a chief programmer who had 26 programmers working for him and thousands of hotels depended upon him after the company grew to a point where I was no longer even involved in programming. We had at that point, lots of offices, 29 around the world. And so, uh, this guy, whose name was Tom, I won't give you his last name, uh, wanted to be a marketing person and said to me, uh, you know, I want to be a marketing person so badly that if you won't let me do it, even though I'm your chief programmer, I have to leave. And I couldn't convince him to stay and he left. That was way back in 1990. And in 1995, the date was August 26th, I received an email from him after five years of not hearing from him at all. And I've memorized the email, so this will be very easy. And I'm just going to kind of give you a few sentences from it. Hello again, Dave. 
I'm employee number seven at a Seattle-based retail internet startup called Amazon.com. He was Jeff Bezos' marketing person, (laughs) employee number seven. And he had invented some great things already, and the company was only two weeks into its marketplace. And he said, uh, Jeff is in round two of capital seeking. That was the term he used. And he's looking for $100,000. And if uh, I were a little more risk averse or risk taking, I would certainly do it. But I'm sure I could introduce you to him and he would take your money. And I thought about that. I'm in Los Angeles. That's Seattle. I had a twin engine airplane, and yet that was a long way away. And so my response after thinking for a little while was, gee, Tom, great to hear from you. Keep me informed. Well, several things. Number one, Amazon went public in less than two years after that point in time at $1.97 a share, and that 100000 would have been worth $33 million. More importantly, had I not sold any shares, and nobody would have done this, and looked at it today where a price is above $1,400, it would have been in... Hmm. The multi-billions of dollars, B, billions of dollars worth of value. And it turns out that I told that story enough times in keynotes. And I came off the stage a couple of years ago and uh, from the Angel Capital Association International Conference. And two guys tapped me on the shoulder and showed me that extra value of the billions. And then I found uh, the person who is in charge of an angel group in Seattle who said, not only do I know the name of the person that took your place, He is still on the Amazon board after all of this time. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, wow. You never know what gets away. And that certainly is a story for all of us. That is, that is, I mean, but I'm sure you've had, I mean, I don't know if you've invested in businesses quite like that, but that's life. There's going to be ones that pass you by. You just have to hope that you've, you know, you've done the ones that, uh, you know, enough that, that will make you happy and will provide the satisfaction in your career because you're not going to get everyone. Gives me the title of uh, keynote, which is smiling at success. Excuse me, smiling at success, laughing at failure. Yeah, you got to do. I love it. Well, Dave, I'm so glad I got that story. I'm glad we got to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you again. Hey, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Let me know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends. Thank you.